This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we will be diving into the updates that were just put out on the Secure Act 2.0. So you don't want to miss this. It's going to be a lot of great information for those of you that want to understand how this is going to affect retirement planning and all the uh, big pertinent changes that made. So make sure you stick around for that. But today on the download, Microsoft is entering into a deal, uh, verbal agreements into investing $10 billion over multiple years into AI company ChatGPT, which would bring the valuation of this AI company to over $29 billion, making it one of the most valuable uh, pre-IPO private companies in the US. Uh, This could this could potentially position ChatGPT for one of the largest IPOs in modern history. So for those of you that are looking to invest into uh, fledgling companies that are just making their debut on the New York Stock Exchange, this could definitely be one to watch out for. The news of what ChatGPT is doing uh, is very exciting with regards to its AI implications and just you know how well it works. If you haven't played around with it, if they open up another round of beta, I would highly encourage you to do so. It is... Uh, to say it is interesting and frightening, all kind of rolled into one is probably the best way to describe it of just asking it to do uh, a new and interesting thing. So if you haven't heard of G- chat GPT uh, or OpenAI, I would highly encourage you to do some research on it. It is, again, very interesting and almost a little bit frightening. Uh, if anyone is remembers Skynet from Terminator, uh, I'm not going to say it's that, but uh, definitely is one of those things where uh, the machines are learning. So uh, take a look at that. It could be some very interesting investment opportunities if they do decide to go public with this large multi-year investment deal from uh, tech giant Microsoft. Uh, Coinbase has announced Tuesday that it is planning to lay off almost 18% of its workforce, or almost 1,200 people, ahead of the worsening outlook in the crypto market in general. However, normally this would kind of hearken a share price drop, but as of the recording of this on Tuesday morning, January 10th, uh, share prices uh, actually rose yesterday, uh, and this was put out mid-morning. So, you know, kind of interesting that the investors or the market in general is taking a bullish outlook on their share price, but uh, maybe this is, uh, you know, a departure from what other cryptocurrency platforms are doing. So people are liking the fact that they are positioning themselves well for a more bearish crypto market, uh, but definitely something to watch out for if you are invested in the uh, in the crypto market and you like to invest in the exchange companies and maybe not the underlying assets of the exchanges, definitely something to look out for. So, you know, we'll see how exactly the, uh, the, this company weathers the worsening turmoil that is coming. And I do believe that it's going to get worse before it gets better for the crypto market uh, in the coming years. Out of the energy sector, Japan's biggest oil refinery, Enios, I really hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, is taking steps to position itself ahead of a declining fossil fuel demand industry by closing 10 of its oil refineries in Japan, which is absolutely wild. I would think that that many oil refineries closing is uh, not something that any company would do lightly. So to see that it is, it is uh, in the pipeline to happen, no pun intended, uh, is you know definitely interesting. Enios expects <clears throat> fuel consumption and 
and and fossil fuel usage in Japan to drop by almost 50 percent by 2040. So in the next 17 years, they anticipate a half demand for fossil fuels in Japan, which I'll be honest, I don't exactly see the the path forward for that. But I mean, these people are are smarter than me. So if they're seeing a decline in that and they want to shut down operations as large as oil refineries to the tune of 10 of them, well, one would hope that, again, people smarter than me or anyone else are making those decisions and might actually be an inclination of where the market is heading. So for those of you that are looking a little bit uh, down the road in the futures of the uh, fossil fuel pr- production and fossil fuel energy sector. Uh, this could be an interesting kind of canary in the coal mine to watch and to see what exactly happens and if you know this company is is actually right. <clears throat> uh, Beijing announced on Monday that a massive plan is being implemented to shore up its domestic chip manufacturing for silicon-based uh, mi- microprocessors. This comes on the past two years of many of the world's nations and largest companies divesting their productions production capabilities from this from from the areas of places like Taiwan and Southeast Asia and China uh, due to the issues that were happening with supply chains during COVID and other geopolitical issues but it's actually showing an effect of this that the uh, especially with the US with the uh, certain legislation that came out to help uh, incentivize companies like uh, Intel and Sun Microsystems and other places to manufacture their silicon-based or silicon-based uh, chips domestically or in countries other than China is actually working. Uh, this, uh, you know, is, is probably a good thing considering we were so beholden to this one country for production, and we saw things like uh, auto manufacturers not being able to put. Uh, computers in their cars during COVID, which helped lead to supply shortages and the huge run up in pricing for 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 everything from cars to consumer electronics over the past few years. So definitely <clears throat> interesting to see that uh, the Chinese government is actually taking steps to try to shore up this production capability and uh, not see this industry, uh, you know, kind of get just demolished like it has been or not get demolished any further than what it has been over the past few years with the divestment of so many different people uh, from manufacturing silicon based uh, micro microprocessors in their country. With that said, this has been the download. Today on The What Is, what is the Secure Act 2.0 of 2022? Now, we're going to be talking about this in detail, but I figure kind of a preface to this uh, would be good with a little bit more of a specific definition of what exactly this is. The Secure Act 2.0 of 2022 is a law designating substantially improved retirement savings options, such as 401ks and 403bs. It is. It builds on the Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement Act of 2019, or Secure Act. Secure Act 2.0 was signed into law by President Joe Biden on December 29, 2022, as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. The Secure Act began began as two pieces of legislation, one from the House of Representatives, H.R. 2954, and one from the U.S. Senate, Senate Bill 1770. After both branches of Congress passed their respective bills, the consolidated legislation was included in the Omnibus Budget Bill as Division T, Secure Act 2.0 of 2022. This has been The What Is.
So today, we got a new big piece of tax legislation that we're going to be covering, dubbed the SECURE Act 2.0. So we're going to kind of dive into some of the more salient points with this. Uh, it is a big chunk of legislation that has very far-reaching uh, legislative implications for not only just retirement plans, but also all sorts of other um, tax-related issues. But again, we're going to kind of distill it down to what it means for retirement plan investors, because after all, um, you know, we are a retirement plan company. I've you know based my career in helping people with IRAs, 401ks, defined benefit plans, ESHSSAs, simple IRAs, SEP IRAs, and everything else in between. So with that said, let's kind of dig into, again, some of the higher level points on what exactly this means for you, because a educated investor can be the most successful investor. And here at the Alternative Investing Advantage, I want to make sure people are, are properly educated and have the tools to go out there and make informed decisions and understand what all the options are there are out there for them. Um, and that can have, again, implications for you know making a certain investment. If you have a required minimum distribution in a certain plan, maybe doing something that's highly illiquid or utilizing all of your capital is something that you want to shy away from. Or if there's a change to that, which there certainly has been, uh, then you know that can definitely help to affect uh, you know what your ultimate investing strategy is. So let's kind of look back at you know why is this called the Secure Act 2.0? Well, the large block of tax reform legislation that came out during the Trump administration was the Secure Act. It had a lot of changes to a myriad of different things with regards to personal finance, retirement plan savings, and we won't go into all of that. But I did a webinar. I did actually two webinars back on the uh, Secure Act when that came out, and. Um, it's it really kind of goes to show just how impactful that was that they kind of wanted to build on this. Now, this bill, you know, I would like to say very apolitical, did have pretty good support from both sides of the aisle. And I think at least from looking at it, the intention for a lot of this stuff was pretty good uh, for, for the most part. I think it's going to probably help a lot more people than it's going to hurt. But again, time will tell on some of these things, especially like automatic enrollment and a few things like that. And I'll, and I'll get into that here in a minute. But one of the first things I wanted to get into is the adjustment to required minimum distributions and some of the rules relating to that, because I think that with an aging population and more of the investors that are interested in alternatives being a slightly of older persuasion, that understanding what changes have happened to required minimum distributions and some of the <clears throat> laws and rules regarding that are very important. So so right off the bat, we have the age of required minimum distributions being changed to 73. So if you had reached the age of 73 by the end of um, uh, last year, or you turn 73 this year, uh, you don't have to start taking you, you have until that age to start taking required minimum distributions It bumped up a year. Now, we do have an additional increase that has been legislated into this and that at the age will be raised to the age will be raised to 75 at 2033. So an additional 10 years will have an additional three years of required minimum distribution adjustment as people continue to live longer and, you know, taking money out that they don't necessarily need can be a burden on these people. So, <clears throat> Uh, again, that's, I think, kind of a step in the right direction. Another really big benefit is the change to not taking a required minimum distribution. Now, I understand retirement finance can be tricky. I've been doing this for almost 11 years, and I'm still learning new stuff. Granted, I am a bit of a sucker, and I'm the one that will sit there and read all of this legislation to try to figure out new and creative ways and how it's implemented and how this can benefit people. And I would like to think that I'm in the minority. A lot of people hear this stuff and you know, just want to get the highlights of what is important to them. And, and that's what I'd like to bring you. Now, 
taking a required minimum distribution, again, can be kind of confusing when it comes to figuring out, hey, what's my life expectancy? Hey, what's my joint life expectancy table? How do I plug this in? How do I calculate? Now, there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of tools out there that will help people with doing that. But again, retirement finance and tax legislation is something that not a lot of people are super well versed in, and it can be easy to make a mistake. And something this bill has done in a few different ways has tried to <clears throat> help people when they're when there are mistakes made. Um, you know, running afoul of the IRS is not something a lot of people want to do. And if you fail to take a required minimum distribution, the penalty, uh, maybe for lack of a better term, was rather egregious uh, when it came to what type of penalty the IRS would slap on you for not taking a required minimum distribution. Now, before I get into the change, let's talk about what it was currently. If you fail to take a required minimum distribution, let's say you had a required minimum distribution from your pre-tax retirement plans that totaled $50,000, right? That's a pretty sizable one, but I want to go to illustrate. If you fail to take that required minimum distribution, you would be required to do so, and also distributions from any years that you subsequently missed. The penalty, now this is just a check you have to write to Uncle Sam for failing to take one previously, was 50%. I said that right, 50% penalty. So if you had to take a $50,000 distribution from your retirement plans, you would have to stroke a check to Uncle Sam for $25,000, and you still have to pay tax on the whole 50. Um, it was, again, big numbers when you're talking about that. And if you have someone, let's say, that had a $1,000 required minimum distribution, that's a $500 penalty that that person has to pay. And that person that is, has a $1,000 required minimum distribution, I can almost certainly guarantee needs that whole thousand a lot more than the person that can that has a $50,000 required minimum distribution because they probably have you know significantly more retirement plan savings as the ratio is based on the value and your life expectancy. So that is a huge burden to bear, especially for someone just failing to take out money from a retirement plan. It's an easy enough mistake that almost any of us can make, especially those that aren't you know, as well versed in you know rules and regulations when it comes to this stuff, which I'd say is the majority of people. So again, what they have done, I want to give credit where credit's due. They have actually reduced that penalty quite significantly and given taxpayers a few more options. So what has happened going forward, if you fail to take a required minimum distribution, Right off the bat, the government has halved that penalty to 25%. Now that is still sizable. So again, if you had a $10,000 distribution that you were required to take, now instead of having to pay a $5,000 uh, check to Uncle Sam, now you just would have to pay a $2,500 one, which again, still a big deal, still have to pay tax on the full 10. But again, it does offer a good measure of relief. But I think where this really shines is the fact that if you self-report, so you said, hey, you know, oh, I forgot to take my required minimum distribution. You self-report it by filing an amended tax return and taking the distribution, the penalty is only 10%. And I feel like that's a lot more reasonable. Uh, you know, people in general, you know, want to do you know, want to abide by the rules and regulations that are out there. I know a lot of us don't enjoy paying taxes, but I guarantee you almost all of us want to make sure that they are done right. And if you fail and you made a mistake, you want to be able to correct that and not be kind of held to almost an unsustainable standard of having to pay half of what you had to take out and pay tax on the whole thing. So again, that self-reporting um, requirement, I think is a really good step in the right direction. It's really going to help a lot of people out, especially if you found that you, hey, you made a mistake, you can go back, correct it. It's only a 10% penalty. So again, had to take out 10,000 bucks, 
now you just have to pay a thousand dollar penalty. Um, and again, for people that have smaller required minimum distributions, I think that's going to be a much bigger benefit because again, it's going to let them, you know, keep more of their, their money that they they need much more than people that have larger retirement plans. So required minimum distribution age going up to 73 this year. And in 2033, it will get bumped up an additional three years to 75. And the significant reduction and restructuring of how penalties are paid if you did not take a required minimum distribution. Big thumbs up on both of those. Now, contributions have been updated as well in a fairly significant way. So right now, we have um, you know fairly standard cost of living adjustments of the um, traditional and Roth IRA contributions. You know, it's fairly standard what they go up to. Um, I won't kind of go into just, you know, that basic, those basics. But what we do have is the catch-up contributions have changed drastically. So starting in January of 2025, individuals 60 through 63. So they give you a window of, of your ages starting then. Um, so right now you get a thousand dollar bump when you get to the age of uh, 50 and a half. So now once you get to the age of 60 to 63, starting in 2025, so this doesn't take effect yet. So important thing to remember, there's a lot of different dates that come around here. Some of the provisions of this law, and I'll do my best to mark when those, you know, the immediately starting provisions. Uh, so for example, the RMD age changed this year, but again, 2025, that's when you have the additional three years. And 2025 is a kind of a common uh, one in here. Uh, there will be some stuff that starts in 2023. And again, I'll explain that. But with regards to contribution catch-up, catch-up contributions being updated, this is a big one. And it offers a lot of flexibility and some interesting things for, for people that are higher wage earners too, because uh, you know I think that tax law in general should probably try to benefit the most people. Granted, the you know people that probably need the most relief are going to be your lower wage earners. So let's call it households that make less than um, you know seventy five thousand dollars a year as a householder. You know, again, that seventy five thousand dollars as a household, uh, you know, here in Florida is is a you know fairly good household income transplant that to, you know, San Francisco, that's, you know, probably well below the poverty poverty line. So again, using this kind of as generic numbers, but again, giving people additional ability to save, I think is always going to be um, a best benefit, but it should be to as most people as possible. So not just the median or the lower income, but also there should be some benefit to everyone as well. Um, you know, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean I think that you should, you know, get you know penalized per se from that. But it should be an equitable distribution of, uh, you know, tax benefits to to all. And I think this next part really kind of illustrates that. So you have the catch-up contribution being in place to again try to help people who, you know, earlier in life you're probably making less money. You don't have as much ability to save, but the time that you need money is when you probably. Need, need the retirement savings is when you're closer to retirement and, you know, trying to get some of these great tax advantages can be tough. So that's why they, you know, had given the thousand dollar bump of the catch-up contribution to Roth and traditional IRAs. Well, they're further expanding on it with this. So starting in January 1 of 2025, individuals 60 to 63 will be able to make catch-up contributions of up to $10,000 per year, additionally to their IRAs. Now, that's a big number. So that's an additional $30,000 per person or $60,000 per married joint filing household into a retirement plan, which is absolutely fantastic uh, for people, again, that are trying to get a little bit of a head start in their retirement, want to get some funds in there that can grow tax advantage, either tax exempt uh, with the Roth IRA or tax deferred with a traditional IRA. 
But the interesting thing that they did here was to try to make sure that they're not offering just a, uh, you know, 60, you know, a, a 10,000 or $20,000 per year per household tax deduction to wealthier individuals is that if you make over $145,000 per year, you have to make that contribution, interestingly enough, directly into a Roth account, which I think is kind of a cool aspect of this, honestly, is that you have higher wage earners that want to be able to contribute to after-tax plans that otherwise weren't able to do so. Now we're being offered the ability to have to go that route, which I've always been a big proponent of the fact that Roth IRAs will typically make the government more money at a present value than they ever would potentially get with a traditional IRA. As all the contributions to a Roth IRA are going to be non-deductible, means that the government gets to generate more revenue on a present value basis than they would if they're just giving uh, you know, perpetual tax deductions and tax deferment for these, uh, for these other types of accounts. When people are living longer and longer and longer, there's much less ability to kind of capture the revenue from the taxes on that income, as opposed to just saying, hey, front load your taxes now, don't pay any tax on the back end, I think helps to you know start generate more revenue. And I think that clear heads are prevailing on this sentiment and actually looking at the math and how it works by doing this. So Starting in 2025, individuals 60 to 63 are able to make the catch-up contributions at a much higher rate of $10,000 per person or $20,000 per household. Uh, that can be Roth or traditional, or you know you can co-mingle that as you know some here, some there. Uh, unless you make over $145,000 in the year preceding that, in which case it has to be made after tax, which again is a benefit to people that are higher wage earners and the fact that they were precluded from being able to directly make a Roth IRA contribution in the past, and now they're being given the green light with this catch-up contribution to make a fairly sizable one, especially when you uh, compound that into how much <clears throat> the um, those households can actually put in there. So again, you know, the catch-up contribution changes I think are going to be a really big benefit to people uh, because one of the biggest issues with IRAs is just kind of that low contribution limit. Now, granted, you know, that's all going to be perspective. Sixty-five or seventy-five hundred dollars uh, to you might be a very different number than it is to someone else or someone else, and you know, so on down the road. So again, giving people you know greater degrees of flexibility and the ability to put more money into these plans is going to really do nothing but really help, I believe, everyone that's trying to save for retirement. Because you know, you know, in this space that I operate in, you know, alternative investments, there's not a whole lot of alternative investments that people are doing, you know, with six or $7,000 per year. So being able to give people the opportunity to widen their horizons and get invested into other interesting alternatives uh, with higher contribution limits, especially if they hadn't, maybe they're still working at a job and they weren't able to, you know, withdraw money as a rollover to an IRA, uh, you know, starting with just contributions, it's going to take you a while, especially if you haven't been saving uh, as diligently as, as you maybe should have uh, over the preceding years. Now, moving on uh, into 401ks, and there's going to be kind of a little bit of a jump around with the 401ks. So let's start with kind of the big headline that uh, is getting a lot of attention. And I think rightfully so, but there is kind of a a two, a two sides to this coin. Um, and I'll kind of explain what I think about that is that they have expanded the automatic enrollment for retirement plans. Um, so one of the reasons that they're giving that a lot of Americans, uh, you know, get to retirement without uh, many much retirement savings is that they either don't understand or fail to elect to participate in retirement plans and then just kind of miss out on all of that retirement plan savings. Well, what this portion aims to do is require <clears throat> um, 401k plans, uh, if they're being offered to automatically enroll participants 
uh, into the respective plan upon becoming eligible. So if you are working for a company and they say, hey, you have to reach at least uh, 90 days of service and work at least 40 hours a week uh, for us in order to be eligible for our retirement plan, be at least 21 years old, X, Y, and Z. If you meet that criteria, they will automatically enroll you into the plan. Now, that's very good, I think, from the aspect of looking at it by saying, hey, let's try to get more people to participate in these plans that will do nothing but inherently help them. Now, depending on the structure of the plan, you know, some people, maybe they can't really afford more money coming out of their paycheck than, you know, just what they're getting. So, you know, if you're being automatically enrolled uh, into something, um, you know, that could be, you know, a detriment to you if you didn't necessarily understand. And I think that one of the things that this bill maybe fails to address is the education aspect of this. I think it's great that you say, hey, let's try to make this easier for people to save for retirement. But without the education front end, I think it could also maybe have the ability to, to maybe hurt some people. Uh, you know, they're trying to target the disaffected parts of society that maybe didn't have as many opportunities to save for retirement. I think that's very noble of them, you know, say what you will about the motivations for, um, for politicians. I think we probably all could have, you know, many opinions about that, but if their, you know, intentions are true and that they are trying to help the people that are in most need of more financial security in retirement, and that's great. But the problem is, is these people are typically going to be your lower wage earners who need every last cent in that paycheck to pay for groceries, childcare, transportation, just the cost of living in general. So if you automatically enroll them into a plan that is going to start suddenly start taking 3% out of their pay, you know, the education has to front has to be on there. So this automatic enrollment provision does allow the employees to still opt out. You're not, you know, forced into a retirement plan. But once you reach eligibility, the 401k plan administrators are, and employers are required to enroll you in the plan. And it can start as low as uh, 3% uh, deferral into the plan and can go up to 10%. So, you know, if they're enrolling you at 3% of your of your compensation as a deferral to that plan, and someone doesn't notice, you know, granted, you know, you should be paying attention and should endure, again, two completely different avenues here, but you should be looking at what your take-home pay is. Uh, you know, if you notice that it went down, uh, then, you know, you, you hopefully would be getting some type of educational material or something notifying that you, hey, you've been enrolled into this retirement plan. Uh, you know, if you want to opt out, that's great. But the problem is, is that because there's kind of a higher barrier to entry to understanding employer-sponsored retirement plans, I mean, the the practice of ERISA law is a whole subset of, of law. It's There's lawyers that specialize in just doing law for retirement plans. I mean, it is a crazy convoluted and deep area of study. And I think that the expectation that an employer and, you know, a mid-level manager that's, you know, managing, um, Jamie at the checkout register uh, of telling them, hey, you know, you're enrolled in this 401k plan now that you're eligible when they come and ask, hey, why is there 3% less on my paycheck? Uh, you know, being able to make sure that they understand and explain to this person saying, hey, you know, you are able to opt out of this instead of just saying, oh, you work here now, it's the law, we have to enroll you. I just really hope that the education part of this to the general public and the push for people to understand that you can opt out of this if you need to, uh, really needs to be there. Because if Jamie, you know, is, you know, at the end of the day has $100 left in 
and flexible spending that they have after they pay for rent, groceries, gas, uh, you know, phone bill and everything like that. And all of a sudden they now have 3% less in their pay taken home. You know, if, if they need to adjust that down or, you know, can't really afford to participate in the plan, I just hope that the education aspect of that is there uh, because I think that that does have the ability to, again, have a negative impact. If you have someone that doesn't fully understand it and say, hey, this is just policy, it's law without informing someone that there is a ability to opt out of it. Um, you know, I, I would just hope that that kind of goes hand in hand and does kind of help out with that. But open enrollment or sorry, automatic enrollment, I think, will probably be a net positive for helping people to better save for retirement, uh, just as uh, Social Security is. You know, you're that's kind of the 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 original, um, you know, uh, auto enrollment uh, retirement plan, um, you know, say what you want to about it. And again, I'll you know, try to stay middle of the road, but you know, you, you are automatically enrolled when you, every paycheck you pay out social security, you know, the, the idea is that it uh, is something that is just done and expected. And then you get to, you know, reap that benefit in retirement uh, by getting the uh, subsidized uh, or sorry, getting that stipend back from Social Security to help uh, help you in retirement. Um, you know when you're probably going to be on a fixed income. So, having an additional automatic enrollment retirement plan again, I think will be a net positive. But the education aspect, I think, is something that's really important there. And I just again would hope that that is going to play out. So we have again some getting farther into the 401k kind of the employer sponsored plan thing. There have been again some other changes as well. Uh, 401ks for sole proprietors and single member LLCs had a really big beneficial update that clarified something that I have had a huge issue in my entire career. So to kind of back up, when you have a 401k, you have two different parts of contributions. You have the elective deferral, which going back to talking about Jamie, the checkout register, um, you know, you have the portion of that you defer out of your compensation, then you have the match that goes into the plan as well. So for the self-employed individual uh, or the uh, owner-operated business, uh, it works out a little bit differently. So you can defer a portion of your compensation to the plan, and then you also have that non-elective portion, call it the match, that the employer can make as well. Now, if you're a self-employed individual or sole proprietor, you know, generally – you just say, hey, you know, whatever my total revenues were at the end of last year, if you're a sole proprietor, is you know what your pay was, and it can be really difficult at the end of the year to make that elective deferral because what they, the regulation on the timing for making that elective deferral to the plan, so the the part of your salary or your compensation that you defer, um, you know, if, for those of you that are listening, if you you know just kind of go in, you tell HR, say, hey, I want to contribute ten percent of my pay to the plan. Uh, that's what I'm talking about here is that compensation deferral to the plan. Well, it's really hard for a self-employed individual to kind of know what they made and how much they can actually contribute uh, till the end of the year. You know, if your take-home pay is basically the revenues of a business, a business doesn't know exactly how much money they made, you know, starting January 1. They don't just get a, a statement uh, saying, hey, here's exactly what it is. They got to do their taxes, figure out all their expenses, you know, make sure they close out any accounts receivable or payable, make sure they get all that income that's being shown on the previous year. And that's why uh, business filing deadline is different from the personal filing deadline of April 15th or the next following business day. So what they've done here, well, I should get back to the issue that I had, is that the 
IRS was very vague on when you actually had to make that first part of the contribution. The SECURE Act did some good things in the the initial one back uh, several years ago is that they said, hey, so long as you have the plan established by years in, you can make your um, match so that non-elective, the business match portion of it up until your filing deadline plus extensions, um, and you didn't have to have the plan established um, in that given year anymore. So you had you know pretty good amount of leeway with that. But the problem was that if you wanted to make a deferral of compensation, you still have to have the plan uh, open in the preceding year. But what they said is that you have to make the contribution by a reasonable uh, amount of time from the time that payroll was ended. Well, again, for self-employed individuals, it's not necessarily a traditional payroll. Um, so I would always tell clients, look, there's kind of a vague area on this. They say best practice is within uh, 30 days of the last payroll. If you can try to make that contribution by January 31st, you know, I think a month is a reasonable amount of time. That'd be great. But it's still kind of a burdensome thing to tell a self-employed individual or a single member LLC, a sole proprietor, is that they have to do it by this certain deadline when they just don't know how much money they made. Uh, and what their what all their take home you know pay is going to look like. So a really big benefit I think that this plan is really going to have a almost hundred percent positive impact on is that they say if you're a sole proprietor, a single member LLC, you have the ability so long as that the plan was established within the calendar year, so January one to December thirty one, you have to make a contribution. But for example. <laughs> Uh, so long as you establish that plan by 1231, adopt the plan, you have up until your filing deadline to make both parts of that contribution, which I think is, again, very beneficial to people. Uh, you know, self-employed individuals have enough headache uh, by being self-employed to not also have a very vague statement from the IRS telling them when they have to make a certain contribution to their retirement plan by. So this clears things up. It gives good clarity and direction to those self-employed individuals. And again, I am really happy that this happened because one of the worst things I think in finance that we deal in so many, so many definitive black and whites, here's the regulation, here's the interpretation. When we have something that is important as the date of a contribution to keep something like your retirement plan in compliance. And the best answer I can give to a client is, well, in general, my thought on the best practices, because the IRS's legislation is vague, that doesn't help anyone. So I think this change, again, will be very good for people, gives people more breathing room that are self-employed, those single member LLCs, those sole proprietors, um, those contract workers, gives them a good degree of breathing room to say, look, you know, it's the end of the year. I don't have to rush and figure everything out after the holidays. I have some breathing room. So I think that's a really good move in the right direction. And um Again, yes. Yeah. So, so long as the plan is established by 1231, you have up until your filing deadline to make both sides of the contribution. And that has been clarified here with this um, um, with this part of the, uh, the 401k updates. Another interesting aspect of 401ks that differed from IRAs was the treatment of Roth 401ks. So quick background. So a Roth IRA is an after-tax contribution plan, meaning that you pay your taxes, you put money in, and it grows completely tax exempt. But one of the tax planning strategies that the Roth IRAs have is the um, fact that they don't have to take a required minimum distribution, which is a big benefit to people. Not having to take a required minimum distribution is a reason that, you know, I think maybe not a good chunk of people, but certainly some choose to go the Roth IRA route is they just would not like to have to take money out of the plan. Obviously, they don't want to pay taxes on the revenues generated by that plan. But not having to take a required minimum distribution is a pretty nice thing about a Roth IRA. 
Well, Roth 401ks, for whatever weird reasoning um, of the tax code up until now, you had to take a required minimum distribution from a from an after-tax portion of a Roth 401k, which, again, one of those things with the IRS and tax code uh, that I just never understood. But big benefit now, as of January 1 of this year, um, again, if you had... If you had a 401k last year that had Roth in it, you do have to take an RMD of that. So essentially the RMDs that are going to be coming out in, you know, that you have to calculate in 2023 going into 2024, in 2024, you will no longer have to take a required minimum distribution from a Roth 401k plan. Again, big thumbs up. I think, again, that falls in line. It simplifies things. If you have a Roth account, you don't have an RMD, whereas before it was kind of weird. Everything has an RMD, including Roth 401ks, except the Roth IRA. Again, those are those little nuances that people wouldn't look to think about. You know, if I told if I told most anyone out there, you know, I, I would say if you polled 10 people or a hundred people that had Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks and a mixture of all these other things, and I said, hey, which one do you have to take a required minimum distribution from? I would be shocked if fewer than 90 or 95 people realized that you had to take a Roth um, required minimum distribution. So again, things that simplify and make more uniform across the board regulations with regard to tax code, I think are going to be nothing but benefit. And plus, we had clients that would like to that like to participate in <clears throat> Roth 401ks for a lot of different reasons, but a big benefit is the exclusion of UDFI taxes on debt leveraged real estate. I know I'm getting a little bit off uh, the beaten path here, but <clears throat> utilizing 401ks is hugely beneficial for people investing into limited partnerships for real estate acquisitions. Uh, anything that uses debt financing, 401ks are awesome. But if you have you're an older individual and you have illiquid assets, then you know again debt leveraged real estate, something that maybe doesn't allow you to have commensurate funds to make a required minimum distribution. Um, you know, rolling out to a Roth IRA is attractive for the RMD, you know, exclusion. But you are then subjected to UDFI taxes again on debt leveraged real estate. I know that's again a little bit more nuanced and maybe uh, pointed towards a specific aspect, but that's one of the reasons I really like 401ks is some of the additional benefits they offer to the investor. And now that you have the protections of not having an RMD, I think it's going to open up a lot of avenues for people to get more creative with their uh, investing, especially those people that are older, because the RMD can be a big hindrance, especially for people investing on alternative assets. Because how do you distribute? How do you do your RMD if you have something highly illiquid? Do you, uh, you know, splice up the ownership? Is that even possible with the types of things that you're invested in? So these clarifications and more uniform approach to RMDs. Big thumbs up. I think that's going to be a great help for a lot of people out there. Um, so again, no more required minimum distributions on 401ks. Gets a big thumbs up for me. Now we're going to get into, let's call it, the slightly stranger stuff that I don't know how they're necessarily going to implement. Uh, I think there's some, definitely some benefit to this stuff. Um, again, not all of it is strange. I think some of it is really big thumbs up, but it's maybe not as it's not the things that are going to be getting as much press coverage. Uh, some of them, a few, uh, and notably one on, um, oh, we'll get to it in a second. But I think notably some of this stuff, again, is uh, call it the strange and unusual uh, that got included in here. Again, some of it's great. Some of it, I don't know how it's going to work functionally. But first, they are kind of rewriting the books on SEP and simple IRAs. 
Previously, SEP and simple IRAs were uh, only pre-tax, meaning that all the contributions, whether it was the employer contribution or whether it was the employee elective contribution, were always made pre-tax. So these plans in general were kind of just traditional IRAs on steroids is kind of, you know, the moniker that gets thrown around in, in the finance area. You know, it's just a, a traditional IRA with some additional benefits, but it's all pre-tax. Well... As the IRS does, not anything can be simple. And they've decided to say, you know what? We're now going to allow the participations in these plans by the employer to be after tax, effectively creating Roth SEP IRAs and Roth simple IRAs. Now, on face value, I'm a big fan of the expansion of the Roth program. I think it makes the government more money at present value, so that way they can potentially not have to raise our personal income tax rates as much or maybe kind of play around with giving us some tax relief. Um, I think the Roths are great. The fact that you can compound stuff and then pay a grand total of zero tax coming out on the back end, um, I think anyone would agree that zero tax is better than almost any other tax. Uh, again, doing it legally, make sure you pay your taxes when you're supposed to pay them uh, in the appropriate uh, times. But you know, I think the Roth IRA is, is a hugely beneficial tool, uh, but it's not you know, necessarily the right tool for everyone or the right tool for all strategies, having tax deductions, again, certainly a benefit. But the SEP and the simple IRA have kind of been the stalwarts and always been the two kind of big traditional pools uh, of pre-tax money. Now, what this is going to effectively do is for the simple IRA, it's not too terribly bad. It would just be saying, okay, you know what, the employer uh, is, you know, deferring, you know, making their elective contribution, the, they've said how they're going to calculate the contributions they're making of this is after tax. Uh, and then the employer employee is just liable for, you know, collect claiming more income and then going forward. Um, so again, easy enough there. The SEP IRA is where I do not know for the life of me <clears throat> how this is going to play out in reality. So here's some of the issues that I see, and they are not just necessarily from the taxpayers, you know, the investor standpoint, but also the administrators. Now, don't get me wrong. We are as self-directed or just IRA administrators and custodians in general, we are always happy to do the work. But I, I just don't want this to come off as, you know, in any type of complaint, but the simpler we can make things and the simpler all things, you know, all that's remaining equal for the client is typically the better. So let's kind of play this out a little bit. So on face value saying, hey, the employer contribution can be made after tax, great. We create larger amounts of contributions that can be made after tax to help people get more money in Roth IRAs generally is a good thing. And I would agree with that. But now coming into this <clears throat> with the SEP IRA, especially for a self-employed individual, or let's say you have uh, a partnership or an LLC, now how is that additional income? Because again, these contributions are made after tax. Who's and the, and the SEP IRA is a business contribution. So it's you're electing how much of your compensation, your total compensation you want to make to the plan. The employer makes that contribution on your behalf and you've reduced your salary by that given amount. So how was that income going to be claimed then? It's a little wonky, but I'm sure we'll get some clarification on that. What this is going to do, I think on the back end, that's going to really kind of complicate things and solo 401k and 401k plans have been dealing with this for years, but now it's going to loop in a whole other block of people to this, is how do you do the accounting for mixing pre and post-tax funds? Well, you could certainly separate it, but you know a lot of people like to have the purchasing power of their entire accounts available to them which again, I can understand. It's 
just kind of one of these things where it's going to be a kind of an administrative nightmare. So let me, you know, play out a scenario a little bit for you and kind of help to show you exactly, uh, you know, what this looks like. So let's say a self-employed individual maintained a SEP for four years, contributing 25% of his $100,000 compensation to the plan for those four years. Now he has $100,000 in that IRA of plan assets. Now, after this year, the client wishes to start blending his tax deductible and non-deductible contributions to the plan and decides to contribute 15 grand of pre-tax and $10,000 of after-tax contributions to the SEP. So still making his $25,000 contribution per year, but now he's splitting it up and co-mingling pre and post-tax funds to the plan. Now, going forward, if he wants to maintain this plan as one, then he would have to then in turn track the underlying basis of the earnings attributable to the pre-tax portion and the after-tax portion. And then also, you know, how that basis tracks a long time with any additional contributions and net earnings attributable to the underlying pre-tax and post-tax pools, which if you've ever tried to do net earnings attributable to pre and post tax within a plan, especially a commingled or an omnibus plan, it's not exactly the easiest thing to do. Um, and it's not your basic uh, first in, first out uh, accounting uh, principles. It can get a little complicated and it gets more complicated the longer it goes on. Now, with that said, you know, is the administrator going to have to bear that burden? Well, part of it. Uh, and one thing that I think is going to be a detriment to the client is that, hey, you know, let's say the client doesn't want to have to deal with all this co-mingled pre and post-tax funds. Well, what do you do? We'll just have two accounts, have the SEP Roth and the traditional Roth. But then you might start increasing the cost of the client to maintain two separate buckets uh, of money within the plan. So the administration uh, could get more complicated and the administrative expense can also go up for this as well. Now, the downside to this is that the SEP IRA came out of its whole existence. You try to simplify the simple plan. I know this is a, <laughs> a lot of the uses of the word simple, but that was you know kind of a history lesson on why that plan came about to be the simplified employer pension. Now, I think adding additional features, while it does add complexity, is probably, again, going to be a net positive, but... I like to dig into these things a little bit deeper and kind of make sure people, again, are going into things, both feet forward, both eyes open, understand what you're getting into, understand what this is and is not, and again, be able to make the most informed decision. But I think this is going to be one to kind of wait and see and see just how much additional clarification the IRS is going to have to uh, spit out in order for you know this to kind of be uh, you know better understood and again, better utilized and implemented by the taxpayer. Because... The last thing people want to do is start doing something and then kind of get in over their head. So again, these are just some things that I, being the the nerd for this kind of stuff that I am, think about when someone says that. You know, I kind of think about the back end of how inherently complicated this could potentially be. Roth SEP sound like a great idea. Face value, yes, but you know what goes into that. You know, is is anyone's guess? Kind of like uh, you know, it's like, hey, would you like a pool at your house? Yes. Well, you got to dig it up. You got to get permits. You got to get the plumbing installed. You want to go salter chlorine. You know, it's just one of those kind of scenarios where, you know, on face value, yeah. Do you want to pay, have the ability to have a big, huge Roth IRA in retirement? Yes. But getting there <coughs> could inherently be a problem. Now, um, some other interesting things that came about. Uh, there's some stuff with regarding uh, participation in 401ks. Uh, while still paying student loans. So one thing that this is aiming to try to fix is that um, 
people that have student loans typically don't participate in a 401k. Uh, therefore, they miss out on the employer match into that plan. So they have, you know, this burdensome, um, you know, you know, thing on their back of having to pay student loans back while also not being able to save for retirement. Uh, you know, this is a sword that cuts left, right, up, down, and center. So what they did here, and I think this is a really awesome thing. And again, how this is going to implement will be a little time will tell, is that if you are not participating in the deferral of your compensation to a retirement plan, but you do have student loans that you are actively paying, you can still enjoy the benefit of the employer uh, match as to the amount uh, they'll they'll clarify this of how much you know you'll be able to say that you can you know that you're paying you know because with a 401k you say hey I'm deferring you know 10% of my compensation if that's 300 bucks um, you know and they're matching 4% of that contribution then you would still get to enjoy that while still not putting because previously you have to put money into the plan to participate and enjoy that contribution. Now they're saying if you're paying student loans, you can still participate in the plan, put no money in because you're paying the loans, but still enjoy the match from the employer uh, into that plan. So I think that's going to be, again, real big benefit. Student loans were a nightmare when my wife and I had to pay them. Getting those off of our back was amazing, but there are so many people out there and even people I still went to undergrad with that are still paying those student loans back. Um, so again, I think that that is going to be awesome to help people, you know, again, pay the debt that they took on, but also still help to save for retirement, which is tough when, you know, it's it's going out as fast as it's coming in and you're not able to participate in that. I think that is a really, really good thing. Now, one thing that the original Secure Act did was it redefined the term for a full term for a full-time employee. Now, typically the gold standard was if you work over a thousand hours in a year, you're considered an employee that is eligible to participate in a or you're considered a common law employee that is eligible to be offered a 401k plan. Now there's a lot of there was a lot of pushback for many years because many there were a lot of people that work part time, uh, especially with regard to uh, stay at home parents, uh, stay at home mothers. They were you know that maybe worked part time but weren't able to ever uh, save for retirement in a meaningful way because they didn't work a thousand hours a year for a particular employer. So the Secure Act first one said that the uh, eligibility requirement changed still a thousand hours per year, but if you worked. 500 hours per year over a consecutive three-year period, you also had to be considered eligible for a retirement plan if one was being offered. Uh, again, that's good. Now, this has been further reduced to say, instead of three years, it goes down to two. Now, for people that are self-employed, this does have some big, big implications because if you have, a, you know, maybe just a, a bookkeeper or someone that, you know, doesn't work a whole lot, you know, or maybe doesn't even want to participate, it increases the administrative costs to these plans uh, because you do have to do certain type of plan testing and audits and things like that if you do have eligible employees. So it can, <clears throat> um, excuse me, it can help to drive up the cost of administering a plan if you have these types of people that have done work for you. So again, I think this one's kind of a mixed bag depending on who you look at, the self-employed solo 401k or self-employed sole proprietor single member LLC. I think it might have the ability to drive up costs of the plan administration and maybe honestly hurt them a little bit more than it's going to help. Now with small businesses or people that are working for larger businesses, you know, doing small part-time work here and there, I think it's going to really help those people. So depending on, you know, which way you're viewing this, it could be a help, it could be a hindrance. Again, I think it's probably going to help a good amount of people, but from the perspective that I have dealing with a lot of self-employed individuals, single member LLCs, 
I think it might have the ability to have a little bit of detriment to the pool of clients that I deal with. But again, I think that the, you know, the people that are disaffected that have had a hard time saving for retirement that have had to work part-time for one reason or another, I think it's going to help a lot of people. So again, I think those people are going to definitely get help by this. Um, the, uh, they have some other interesting things. So I uh, don't want to make this too terribly long. I know it can get a little bit cumbersome to listen to me uh, prattle on about all the interesting things that have uh, been updated in our tax code. Um, so one thing I think that's always interesting reading through this is that they have uh, emergency savings accounts that are coming in. Um, uh, individuals can save from their own, or maybe they fail to do so. Uh, and according to the report by the Federal Reserve, almost half of Americans were struggled to cover an expense of 400 bucks. So um, what this does is that <clears throat> um, it creates built-in built-in savings accounts into the retirement plan. Uh, so employees may employers may automatically enroll, may automatically opt out employees, in, may automatically opt employees into uh, these accounts at no more than three percent of their salary, and the portion of the account is uh, capped at twenty five hundred dollars uh, or lower, set by the employer. So basically, it's again trying to make things easier uh, for people to save money. I think that people are kind of in general, like they understand well enough how to save money when they receive it. I don't think having the employer do like some type of like personal savings account for them is going to benefit people, especially with maybe uh, the more strained relationship that the lower wage earners have with their employers in general. So this one, uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I just thought it was interesting seeing emergency savings, retirement, and all these kind of things lumped into uh, to one thing. I think it kind of is, again, a little bit of a, a, you know, kind of maybe a little bit too much on the automatic enrollment of things. Uh, one other one that I uh, just a something that I saw that caught my eye was literally something that said retirement savings lost and found. Uh, this bill is going to create uh, under the Department of Labor a network for people to be able to search for any retirement plan that they participated in uh, that maybe they can't find. So let's say you had <clears throat> a few different employers over a few years and you know it's been 10, 15 years they've merged, been bought out, uh, and you had 401ks, but how do you figure out where these things went when the company either went out of business or merged? It's going to create a centralized database for you to search and find all the retirement plans that you have or have had. Uh, out there. And then uh, one of the things I thought was oddly uh, altruistic that the this bill included was the ability to self-certify hardship distributions from a retirement plan. Now, this was something that kind of came about mainly from the push of the CARES Act, which was the initial big part of legislation, initial big chunk of legislation during COVID that offered things like PPP loans, the uh, paycheck protection, all those kind of things that came out of that, it also lets you self-certify a hardship distribution from a retirement plan. And it has a few different stipulations in there. But one notable thing I think that they uh, you know, really kind of did well with is that uh, many people uh, that have been affected by uh, things like by any type of hardship, uh, but not just medical uh, or physical disability, but there's a lot of other hardships that people uh, come through in life, whether that's, again, medical bills, uh, but they make a specific provision in here uh, for those individuals that have been victims of domestic violence to access and self-certify their hardship hardship withdrawal need from a retirement plan. 
as I'm sure anyone that's been in this type of situation is going to have uh, definitely a need for for cash and capital to help get themselves in a better situation. I think that looking at this and trying to make sure that people that need retirement funds in a hardship can self-certify and don't have to go to a doctor and just be for medical or disability, uh, but open up to all, all sorts of different um, hardships that people go through. Because if COVID has taught, taught us anything of the past few years with how markets have played out, with how everything in the world has played out, is that hardships come in many form and fashions. And I think, again, this one with especially the uh, carve-outs that they've made for some specific uh, stuff have been uh, been very good. So with that said, uh, I think I've probably rattled on for about an hour uh, on everything that you could ever want to know or learn about this. But again, this is just a, a small, small segment I <laughs> that I picked out of the um, the legislation that's come out. I would encourage anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about this. The um, the government has put out a uh, a good summary, uh, and we'll be putting that out on our blog. So if you'd like to kind of go through, it's about 19 pages of documents, but it kind of gives you a good reference for all this stuff. And again, a lot of this stuff, we don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, if you have questions about this stuff, I try to stay as up-to-date as I can uh, on all this kind of information. So if you do want to reach out to us, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me directly. I can be reached directly at 727-754-9954. If you have a question uh, or reach out on our website, I am more than happy to answer any questions that people have on this stuff. I hope you found it interesting. Um, I, again, am kind of a glutton for punishment and I enjoy reading this stuff. So I hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney. Thank you very much for being with us and I hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.